All right, good morning, everybody. We, uh, I think it's the first day of it beginning to cool down into the low hundreds. No, I, I looked this morning, I think it said like no low 90s, which is like 15 degrees too hot for me anyway, but better than, than 103. It was funny, I went uh, fishing a few days ago in the evening, just real quick, and uh, oh, I, I should just tell this legendary fishing story. This was not the point, but I have to tell this story. Uh, and no, this sounds like it's just completely made up, completely made up story, but this is true. Uh, I was fishing at Moss Landing, and I, I you put your fishing pole in a holder, and it, it's all there. Anyway, make a long story short, something took the bait so hard that it ripped my pole out of the holder and took it into the, into the ocean at, at Moss Landing. And uh, I had a $70 reel and like a $70 pole, which means that I'm probably willing to risk my life to, to, to go get. <laughs> But before I do that, uh, I go, I have kids and stuff like that, so, you know, you don't want to get tangled up with hooks trying to get... Anyway, I cast for about ha- half hour, and I rehook my original pole in the eyelid and bring it in, but I have to bring it in careful because whatever took it the first time is still on the line, and there's an extra fishing pole. Make a long story short, uh, it was a bat ray with a stinger that just took it and bolted with it and stuff. So removing the hook out of that, was, it was a little scary. It was a little scary. I have never caught one of those before. So um, that just sounds made up. That sounds like a fake, oh, I caught my own fishing pole and it still had the stingray on it. I reeled it. It sounds fake. Okay. Uh, we got two weeks left in our journey through the book of First John entitled The Heart of a Father. Then after that, August, if you've been here for a long time, we do what we call our Apologetics Month. Um, you'll be hearing more about the speakers, and there'll be a pamphlet and some brochures after uh, next week out, out in the front of the Connect table for you to get an idea. But we have uh, Greg Kokel coming, Mike Glycona, who wrote one of the best books on the resurrection that I've ever uh, read, um, Jonathan Morrow, who wrote a book um, like Welcome to College, specifically for, for young people to say, hey, this is what to expect when you enter kind of the secular university system. Uh, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, and then Sean McDowell, the last week. And two weeks, two years ago, we had Josh McDowell, his dad, and this week we'll have his son, who's an incredible speaker, gifted dude, got his PhD several years ago. So good stuff happening in August. Keep that in mind. Oh, I was supposed to, as I explained that, switch over to that, but my fishing story got me off track. I don't even know how I'm going to stay focused now, because now I want to go back, <laughs> catch that guy's cousins and brothers and sisters. All right, so two weeks left in the book of First John. I hope you've been enjoying the journey. It's been incredibly convicting. The book of First John is a convicting book. It, it has encouragement in it, but every time like, you start feeling like the love from John, he just tells you something like, if, if you know, be perfect, and obey the commands of God, otherwise you do not know love. And it's like, oh my gosh, man, this is tough stuff. So today's no, another day of mixture where there's encouragement and conviction. So uh, let's just dig right in. We're at the start of chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves everyone who has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey his commands. What I'd like to do, briefly, is try and unpack this word believe, um, because it's incredibly important to John in the book of 1 John, but also in the Gospel of John. And there's a lot of confusion 
built around this word because in English, the word believe, how it acts as a sort of noun and verb is not quite the same way it acts in the original Greek. And, and what I'd like to do is show that to you because the Bible is crystal clear. Belief in Jesus is essential to salvation, so we better make sure we know what the Bible means when it says you must believe. Now, let's unpack this. Um, the word for faith in the Greek New Testament is the word pistis. And every time you see the word faith in your New Testament, 99% of the time it's, it's the word pistis. That's the noun form, faith, pistis, noun. When pistis becomes a verb in Greek, it becomes the word pistuo. But it's, it's just changing the ending. Your brain, even if you don't know another, the, the other language, your brain recognizes it's the same word. Pistis, pistuo. Noun, faith. But when it comes to a verb, the English language has to, to use a, a different word. We don't have a verb of, we don't, we don't say we are faithing in something. So what the English translators, translators do in like 90% of the Bible translations is they'll take pistis faith when it becomes a verb, pistuo, they translate that word believe. But when you hear those two words, faith, whoa, that was weird, faith and believe, they, they have different nuances, right? They, in the English language, they don't exist. Like, you don't think, oh, faith, when I change that to a verb, I, I think believe. Um, and, and then there's all kinds of different ways in which those words are used. For instance, um, I can have faith in my wife, and that means something. But what if I were to say, um, uh, I am going to be faithful to my wife? Or I have faith that the warriors will win another championship. That I have faith in somebody's ability to win a game, but when you think about faithfulness, it, it has different nuances, there are different contexts, it works differently. And so when we look at, at this in the original languages, we got to say, what does the Bible mean when it says you must have pistis, you must pistuo, you have to have faith, you have to believe. Several hundred years ago, something called the Reformation occurred, and they were concerned, incredibly concerned, with the word faith, because one of the kind of battle cries and heart of the Reformation was that salvation was uh, by grace alone through faith alone. Faith is the highway or the means or the mechanism by which grace is received into the individual. So they were saying, what do we mean when we hear the word faith in the Bible? And what kind of came out of the Reformation is, Three Latin words, uh, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. If, you, if you're like an, a Latin nerd, don't I, don't, I don't know how to pronounce those words appropriately. I'm, I know someone's, there's always like a Latin geek somewhere that's going to come up and correct. I have no idea what, it's, it sounds right to me. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Um, the, the notitia deals with knowledge. And what the reformers would say is that faith one component of it is just knowledge. You have to have the content of the gospel in your mind. In other words, the gospel has some facts. Jesus died, rose again, he resurrected, he can forgive sin. There, there's knowledge. Your brain has to have some, some content. But just because you know something, the reformers would say, that's not saving faith. Having mere knowledge is not saving faith. And so they added the second word, a census. And what that meant was you have to affirm the content of that piece of knowledge. Um, you can know the story of the gospel, 
but you actually have to affirm that it's true in order to have the necessary ingredients for what the reformers would say is saving faith. But they would go further and say, you can't just have the knowledge of faith and you can't just affirm it because even the demons, according to James chapter 2, even the demons have the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the gospel, and they actually do affirm its truth. Even the demons believe, but they're not saved, according to James chapter 2. So they would say you have to have this last component of fiducia. You have to actually trust in the nature of that message or the one in whom the message comes from. I hear R2-D2. <laughs> Bill, do you, do you, do, you don't hear it? Okay. Just making sure everyone hears it. Can the back row hear it? So it's all the way back there, R2-D2. Who's on the worship band today? Let me guess who is the, is it you? It's you. I was going to say, is Zach Buffum on percussion today? Because he's a Star Wars dork. And uh, he, he comes to second. Where's he? Oh, yeah, there you are. You were on here, right? No? Yes. Zach Buffum loves Star Wars. And he usually is on, he plays percussion too. So I'm going, Buffum man, got a, got a, his, his wife's text tone is Star Wars. It just invokes all this love and romance in his life. R2-D2. We got a lot of Star Wars nerds at this church. A lot of them. A lot of them. A lot of. A lot of. Back to Latin Greek. Uh, so the reformers would say you have to know the right information. You have to affirm the truth of it, and then you have to have a trust in that message. And that begins to help us understand what this Greek word is actually trying to communicate. I'm going to add one layer to it, though, because I think the the reformers uh, miss something that is embedded into a first century Jewish understanding of the word. And I don't, I don't have a Latin word, but I'm going to use an English word, uh, the word allegiance. Um, the, the people who wrote the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, but especially the first century Jewish mind, saw the world through the lens of monarchy. God wasn't just God, God was king. All the imagery in, in your Old Testament is about the monarchy, God himself being king. What is the imagery of the Ark of the Covenant? And there's two angels sitting on it. That's the footstool to the throne of Yahweh, the throne of God. And you hear the language and imagery again and again and again, God is king. Um, in the New Testament times, the Jewish people were looking for God to come back and return as king to Zion and let his glory fill the temple, and he would rule and reign as king like he did in the Old Testament. So when they looked at this idea of trusting in God, there's this monarchy element. And it's this idea that if you are a child of God, at some point you pledge allegiance to the king. And both the modern American mind and I think probably the mind of the reformers, because at the time historically there was a lot of movements beginning to occur where you didn't like kings. And then the ultimate climax of people not liking kings is us. 1776, it's like we celebrate the day we, we, you know, we, we defeated the king type, type thing and we broke off. So we, we don't see things through that lens of monarchy. We don't like kings usually. We don't like monarchies. That's a bad idea. We're Americans. We like democracy. The Bible doesn't present Christianity, God's kingdom, or, or Jesus as like the leader of an uh, openly elected democratic election type of thing. It's, it's king. And so 
When you say, I put my faith in Jesus, I think you are, you're knowing some content, you're affirming the truth of the content, you're putting your faith and trust in that content, but in addition to that, it's almost like when you become a Christian, you stand up straight, put your hand over your heart, and say, I pledge allegiance to King Jesus. It's this act of saying, I am coming in submission to the one true king. When you read the word faith or believe in the New Testament, try to have all that language and meaning embedded into that one word. If you miss this, you're likely to go off track. So many people think that Christianity is just about kind of intellectual affirmation. I believe in the existence of God, and then it's all good. The writers of the New Testament would say, you believe in the existence of God? Good for you. Pat yourself on the back. How do you live? What do you do? Have you pledged allegiance to the king? It's very important. Let's read that again now with kind of all that language around this word. Everyone who pestuo believes that Jesus is Christ has been born from God, of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. Well, John goes on, and this is, this is where it gets scary. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, kind of building off that theme of belief and faith, look at verse 3. It's, it's, it's not a nice verse. For this is the love of God. And he's not talking about God's love for us. He's talking about our love of God. What does human love of God look like? We keep his commandments. How do you know you love God? You keep his commandments. There's two important factors here. And think of a coin. It's, it's two sides of the same coin. When you love God, you're doing two things. One, which is not mentioned here, is the emotional side of it. You are giving God your affections. John is not denying that in this case. He, he's just affirming a different component of this truth. When you love somebody, you give them your affections. You love them. You love, in this case, we're called to love God more than anything else. Yes, we give, on the one side of the coin, the affections to God, but the other side of the coin is you keep his commandments. And so in one sense, there's kind of this kind of subjective, emotional type of thing. And on the other side of this coin is the objective reality of are you striving to obey the commands of God? Churches, particularly in our culture, want to emphasize the, the kind of affection side of things. For instance, if, if you want to know how someone's doing with their relationship with God, you ask them, how's your relationship with God? And like nine times out of ten, Christians will respond with something to do with like, well, I'm, I, you know, I'm really loving him and I'm spending a lot of time in my quiet times um, praying to God and just being near and close to him. And, and that's all good and fine. Um, but you'll never hear someone, well, you know, I'm being more obedient than I've ever been. And John would say, that's a marker. You're obeying the commands of God more than you did last year. That's a good thing. Obedience matters. And kind of in, again, in our culture, everything's so fluffy and wishy-washy, and, and most pastors have the gift of encouragement. They're shepherds, 
And so the stuff that they nor- normally comes out of their mouth is encouraging. No, no, don't beat yourself up. Things are going well. God loves you. I know you've, but, but sometimes you need to, you, you got to remind yourself, no, you're not obeying God's commands. You're not living like you love him. What's the deal? And you need both, both sides. And depending upon our personality, our background, our church makeup, we'll usually err on emphasizing one side or the other making everything about subjective emotions or making everything about obedience. If you make everything about your affections and it's all subjective about how you feel, um, your tendency is going to be a lot of disobedience. If you make everything about obedience, your tendency is going to be legalism. It's everything has to be just right, otherwise you're not, not a real Christian. John wants you to find the balance. If I tell my wife I love her, but I'm not faithful to her, she should say, I doubt that you love me. And likewise, the reverse of that, let's say I am faithful, but she does not have my, I do not give her my affections and my heart and my emotions. She's still going to be unhappy. You can be technically a faithful husband in that you're not cheating on your wife, but be completely unfaithful because your affections do not belong to her. And so the way it works with our relationship with God is we give him our affections and our emotions and we set our eyes on him, we fix ourselves on him, but we also know that obedience matters. We got a whole world of Christians in America who said some prayer at camp a decade ago and haven't changed in any way, shape, or form and they think they're okay with God. There's evidence, there is fruit of God's saving grace in your life. Something happens to you. You become a child of God. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And then immediately, it's, it's like John just uh, convicts you with something that scares you, and then he encourages you. And his commandments are not burdensome. The father who's giving you these commands, he's not doing it to like oppress you or to keep away fun. When I tell my daughter not to do something, it's not because I just don't have any fun and I, that's not the way this works. In my house, there's no fun. I mean, we're Christians here. It doesn't work that way. Soon, I, I want to protect her from harm. So the, the laws of God are put in place for human flourishing. When human beings, Christian or non-Christian, live within the moral laws of the Bible, humanity flourishes. Take sexual ethics, for instance. The Bible says a man and a woman should uh, be committed to each other in lifelong monogamy. They shouldn't be having sex with anybody else except their spouse for the rest of their lives. When people do that in general, I mean, that, that goes, that, even that goes bad. I mean, we know this because people divorce, etc. But when people commit to that, Stable families are made, and children are brought up in more stable households, and children growing up in more stable households without division between mom and dad are better apt and and better, they're, they're given the gift of stability so that they could face the instability of the world. It is very difficult for a child to deal with the instability of the world and the instability of mom and dad. It is very difficult for a child to do that. So God puts these sexual ethics in place to create an environment where human beings can do better, where they can flourish. The commands of God are not burdensome. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If, if you're like me, 
uh, you, you, you automatically disagree with that statement. I mean, let me read it again. And, and tell me, just if your gut level, you disagree with it. Everyone who has been born of God, so if, if, if you believe in Jesus, you've overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Like, the, the theology in me immediately reacts to that. I have not overcome the world. Jesus is the one who overcomes the world. My faith somehow overcame the world. It, it defeated Satan, sin, and death. No. John is just confused. He kind of repeats himself a lot in this book. It's chapter 5. It's the end. It's winding down. He's at the end of his life. He's forgetting some things. He can't mean that the faith of a human being overcomes the world. But it's in there. He says it. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our pistis, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John's radical, bizarre, crazy claim is that if you have pistis in Jesus, you have overcome the world. More on that later, but I just want that tension to be there. Because I want John to clarify. I want him to say, no, no, Jesus is the one who overcomes, and I'm just kind of like giving you some encouraging words. But he does it. He leaves it there. There's that tension. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has been born concerning his son. This is weird. Like, when, if you're... There's times when you're reading your Bible, and if you're honest with yourself, you just go, I have no idea what this person is talking about. This is, one, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. What? And then he ends his argument. The logic of this is because the water, the blood, and the spirit testify of Jesus, then, then it's true. And you're just like, what, what's going on? So, I don't know what's going on here. Um, but I'm going to give you the, the three most common uh, interpretations of it, tell you what I think is probably in the right direction, and you guys can, can decide for yourself. Um, but pe most people know, okay, there's three people that are testifying. Most people know that the third one, the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit. The translators, actually, of the ESV are letting you know that by capitalizing the word Spirit. On the third line, you see Spirit. Second word over, it's capitalized. Um, when, when the translators of the Bible feel so confidently that this spirit being mentioned is the Holy Spirit, they'll capitalize it to let you know. Because there's a few instances in Scripture, particularly the book of 1 Corinthians, where the word Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God is being interchangeably used with, with just the, a general human spirit, and it's really hard to decipher what's going on. But in this case, most people know this is the Holy Spirit being talked about. But the question is, what is the water and the blood? First interpretation, this was what many in the early church thought, was that the, the water and the blood that are testifying unto Jesus are kind of the, the rituals or rites of the Christian faith, water baptism, and the Eucharist, the Lord's table. And they would say that when, when someone gets baptized, or partakes in, in communion, the Eucharist, there is a, an earthly testimony pointing to Jesus out of that. Second interpretation says, hmm, what could John mean by water and blood? Is there anywhere else in the Bible where John emphasizes water and blood together? And there is. Uh, 
Uh, in the gospel accounts, when Jesus is on the cross, the Roman soldiers stick a spear into his side, and the text says that water and blood comes out. And uh, for a, a long time, people thought that was metaphoric. Why would water and blood come out? That's like weird imagery. But there's uh, some good research done on, on crucifixion victims that say something like that would have happened if a spear went into their side. Um, so some people say what John is talking about is the event of the cross. It's when Jesus' death finally happens and water and blood come out, and that's testifying to the, to the truth of the gospel. The third interpretation uh, is, is similar but different in that they're saying it's ref- the water is referring to baptism, but particularly John baptizing Jesus, and the blood is referring to the death on the cross. And what this interpretation says is that um, think of it as bookends. You're looking at the whole ministry of Jesus. The baptism starts the ministry of Jesus, and the cross ends the earthly ministry of Jesus right before the resurrection. And it's saying the life of Jesus, what he did on earth, is what's doing the testifying here. What I think is occurring is a a variation of that third third interpretation. If you haven't been here, we don't have time to to review um, but if you go all the way back to our first, second, and third week of the series, I, I talked a lot about the reason for John writing this book. John is writing to occur, encourage Christians in a region called Asia Minor because there's a false teaching that's going around. The false teaching we lightly called proto-Gnostic dualism. And to summarize this kind of false teaching, um, the proto-Gnostic dualist said that Jesus didn't, he didn't really come in the flesh. He wasn't physical. He came as a spirit. And if he did come in the flesh, it was because like the Christ spirit came upon a man named Jesus. And what they probably believed was that as Jesus was hanging on the cross, the Christ spirit, the good thing, the spirit left the earthly body of Jesus and he died. So John is writing this letter to tell Christians, don't buy this. God himself has come in the flesh and God has died on a cross for the sins of the world. It's both spiritual and physical. It's material. There's something there. So what I think John is trying to say is he's trying to remind his readers that the whole life of Jesus matters. He was baptized by John. There's a water baptism. But do not forget he spilt his blood. Not, not just a normal man named Jesus or not like spiritual metaphoric blood. Jesus shed his blood for humanity. And that matters. Somewhere in that world is what John is trying to communicate in these various interpretations. Um, but it's one of those sections in Scripture where there's a lot of um, diversity of of thought and we can't be concrete on it. So this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. You see the, the emphasis, not just the water, but the blood. That's why I think there's something going on again with the false teachers saying, and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth for there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he has been, born, has been born concerning his son. Last section. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony of God that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life 
and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. John, in the book of 1 John, in the gospel of John, is incredibly exclusive in his discussions about faith in Jesus. And what I mean by that is John sets up the incredibly offensive message to the modern mind. If you have Jesus, you have life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't, and you're under the judgment of God. Now, for, for many of us, we've been brought up in a modern culture, and so immediately that, that invokes something. We, we, we want to be like an including type of people. But the message of the gospel is clear in the New Testament again and again and again. There, there's no way to get to God except through Jesus. I mean, it's again and again and again. And John says it most clearly, even in this passage. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There is an exclusive nature to the message of Christianity and the gospel. It's that it's Jesus or nothing. There's, there's no other way. And oftentimes, um, we as modern people, even modern Christians, we've inherited a view of ourselves that we're, we're like, we think we're so morally upright, that we're so, so good. We're, we're like a pretentious, self-flattering, like self-engrandizing people. I mean, 60% of stuff on social media is, is like people trying to, to, to make themselves look cooler or, or better than they really are. And that, I, I made that stat up. I don't know. It's probably not 60%. But you know what I mean. There's like, and we all face it. I, I do. Like if I'm at something cool, I want, I want to post about like what I'm doing because it's cool. I want the, the world to see that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just a, like, I'm not a loser. I'm cool. Look at this really cool food I'm eating right now. It's awesome. Well, you wish you were here, but you're not. <laughs> um, and so in, in that view, we, we picture, and Christians have done this, where we picture ourselves like God is far off and distant, he's playing hard to get, and we're, we're trying to get to him, and then the message of Christianity is that Jesus provides a way that so we can finally get to God. This is like perfectly illustrated in, some of you, if you've been a Christian a long time, you're going to know these charts. Um, and in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them, but I want you to see there's, there's a problem with movement and flow in these. Oftentimes when we picture Christianity making this claim that Jesus is the only way, we'll picture like human beings on one side of a giant just cliff, and and the cliff represents sin and death, and people are trying to get to God, but they can't. They're trying to find a way to, to get through this cliff, to not fall down in the trenches of sin and death, and then God, because he's God, he's so loving, he provides the cross, and then we can all walk across it. Again, there's a movement and direction and flow problem. In this, we are picturing ourselves, we're picturing humanity of like wanting to go after God, wanting to find God. We're doing the right thing, but there's this giant cliff and then God creates this bridge so that we can walk across it. And so then when we approach the issue of Jesus being the only way, we picture things in that term. And and what the Bible is presenting and saying again and again clearly is not that Jesus is the only way to God. The Bible doesn't talk like that. Jesus is not the only way to God. The Bible says that Jesus is the only way that God has come to us. 
You see the movement and direction issue? It is not that we were all trying to get across the cliff and then Jesus provides the way for us morally upright people to walk across the bridge and finally find God. Jesus is not the only way to God. Jesus is the only way in which God has come to us. And when he came to us, we didn't like him. We didn't want him. We killed him 2,000 years ago, and if he came again today, we'd kill him again. The world didn't want this God. We, we, we wanted to walk across the bridge. The Christian message is offensive because it says the only way that God has come to us, the only bridge that he's provided is through his son. And you have to have the son to have life. And if you don't have the son, the truth is all roads do lead to the same place. They lead to God's judgment. And you don't want to be there without Jesus. And that is, uh, uh, again, an offense. Uh, our brains in modern culture have been trained to, to, to not think like this. Um, and I just encourage Christians, if you're a Christian, to go, what? I, I don't want to listen to, I don't want culture to inform my theology. I want my, my Bible to inform my theology as much as possible. And then if you're not a Christian, wrestle with this serious claim. It's a serious one. Um, either Jesus is the way to God or, or it's, it's, it's all fake. It's all nonsense. Jesus and the apostles were liars. Now, for John, this is why the cross is so central. The apostles again and again and again emphasize the nature of the cross. The cross is the centerpiece of Christian theology. It all starts from there, and all Christian thought expands from that. And the second you start to mess with the cross, as the, was the case in the book of 1 John, things start to go terribly wrong. So the proto-Gnostic dualists were saying Jesus possibly couldn't die on a cross. God wouldn't die on a cross. That's an insult to the nature of God. And so they started twisting their view of what we call the atonement or what, the question of what did Jesus do by dying on the cross. And when you lose the centerpiece of God himself dying on a cross, it is only a matter of time before things start to crumble and get really funky really quick. You remove the cross or you dilute the message of the cross. Things, things go haywire. We, we're not, in modern culture, we're not wrestling with proto-Gnostic dualists, but I'm telling you right now, you keep your ear out to, to what's being said, even in Christian circles, and the second there's a diluting of the work of the cross, second you water down that message, you say, the cross isn't that big of a deal, it's more about the, the, the nice teachings that Jesus gave us. Things, things start, to, start to get funky. Now make no mistake about it, Jesus also came to live and give us these incredible teachings, absolutely but they're bound up in, in, in the vocation of the Messiah in the fact that Jesus was going to die in place of humanity. I'm gonna do like, this is an easy example, but it, it illustrates this super clearly. Um, there was a, in, in the 90s, super, if you're a theology nerd and not a Star Wars nerd, you're a theology nerd, there, you're aware of this conference. It was a conference that was put on by Men and women were invited, but it was primarily put on by like radical, radical feminists. And it was called the, the Reimaging God Conference. And it was pastors and clergy and leaders coming together to say, we want to reimage uh, Christianity because Christianity is full of all these patriarchal structures and they call God Father and that's a bad thing. And we, we got to kind of do away with that. But the starting point of this conference on the first night, as they began to reimagine God, 
was a redefining of, of atonement or, or, or the cross. So in the question and answer, um, the, the first speaker the first night was asked the question, what is our theory of atonement to be? For what did Jesus come? Dolores Williams responded, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I think Jesus came for life and to show us how to live together, what life was all about. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. We need the sustenance, the faith, and the candles to light. I don't want, I don't want it to be, because uh, there, there's all kinds of reasons why um, women then and now are reacting to, to things that, that aren't right in the world, so I don't want to be, belittle, but, but you can see when you start to take out the, the centrality of the cross of what Jesus has done on your behalf, things start to go, to, to, to go adrift. Even this last line is so weird. We don't need Jesus on a cross. We need candles to light. It doesn't mean more candles to light. More nice things. And trust me on this. There's a critique that says you focus too much on the cross and, and things are bad. There's a truth to that. In that, if you only focus on the cross and don't talk about Jesus' teachings, his commands, and life, yeah, that's a big problem. But again, it's two sides of the coin. Jesus came to live and to teach and to do certain things, but he also came to die. Now, the starting point of this was reimagining the atonement. Now, I want to show you a quote of what was happening on day three by the conference when the conference had ended. After they worked through all the issues that's wrong with Christianity, they, they reimagined God. Keep in mind, this is pastors and leaders. Um, they stopped using the word father for God and replaced the word father or God with the word Sophia. And, and, yeah, you go, what? Well, the reason for that is it makes a little bit of It's still whack, but it makes a little bit of sense. Um, the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. Uh, if, if you're named Sophia, you're named after the Greek word for wisdom. And the Bible talks about the wisdom of God and the Sophia of God. So they used Sophia because it was a feminine name, both it sounds feminine and actually grammatically in the Greek language, it's a feminine, it's a feminine noun. Um, they, they got Sophia and replaced it with the word God. But by the end of the conference, they, they, were, they were like writing creeds up, um, new creeds that they could say together and chant. And this is how the last one ended. Our maker Sophia, we are women in your image with the hot blood of our wombs. We give form to new life. Sophia, creator God, let your milk and honey flow. They took the Lord's Supper communion with... Um, milk and honey rather than bread and wine because um, the bread and wine were seen as part of the oppressive patriarchal structure. Um, we birth a child with our warm body fluids. We remind the world of its pleasures and sensations. We celebrate the sweat that pours from us during our labors. We celebrate our bodiliness, our physicality, our oneness with earth and water. And by the end of it, like core Christian truths were given up. But it started with saying we... We don't really need this cross thing. The cross is an offense to the world. It should be offensive to you. Of course human beings want to do away with it. Who wants a God dying on a cross, dripping in his own blood, sweat, and feces? Who wants that as the center point of their faith? Nobody does. But the New Testament is insistent, persistent, again and again and again and again. We preach Christ crucified. This is what it's all about. And it's foolishness to a world that's perishing. You lose the cross, the whole thing crumbles. It's like that Jenga puzzle. You move that one thing, that move, and boom, it comes undone. It may take five years, ten years. In some cases, in denominations, take a hundred years. But you mess with the centrality of the cross, and things, things go bad. 
And so John, again, is bringing us back to putting our faith in the finished work of Jesus, dying on the cross for the sins of humanity. The Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear, Colossians chapter 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith, God made alive together with him. God has made you alive. You didn't do it. You didn't walk across the bridge. God made you alive with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. By the cross, Jesus has overcome the world. His work, his death on the cross, The day before Jesus is tortured and murdered, he says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he overcomes the world by the cross. That is the inner logic. Jesus is overcoming the world by his death on the cross. You lose that, the victory falls apart. Now back to what first John said, because John in his gospel said, Jesus is the one who claims the ability to overcome the world. But remember first John, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our pistis, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? How is that all working together? The secret in the New Testament is a phrase called in Christ. If you've been a Christian a long time, you've probably heard a phrase like, do you know your identity in Christ? Or don't you know you're in Christ? There's all kinds of good discussions to be had. But the reason why the New Testament emphasizes the idea of in Christ is because the early church, the first followers of Jesus, saw the Savior, Jesus, as the one who had overcome the world. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. But when you put your pistis in him, you are adopted into the family of the father. Jesus is the firstborn son. And when you become a child of God, what is true of the family is then by extension true for you. In other words, the victory of Jesus is your victory. The victory of the cross is for you. What's true of Jesus overcoming the world is true of you. How? Pistis, faith. Why? Why do I just believe something and it becomes that? because that adopts you into the family of God, and what's true of big brother, the firstborn son, is true of the brothers and sisters. His victory is your victory. Modern Christians talk a lot about having Jesus inside of you, inviting Jesus into your heart, and that's fine. I tell my my, my kids that. But the New Testament doesn't talk about you having Jesus in your heart or you having Jesus inside of you. The New Testament talks about you being inside of Jesus. You are in Christ. You are in the family of God. And what is true of Messiah Jesus is true of his people. He overcomes the world. You are adopted into his family and his victory becomes yours. I want to close with, uh, a, a, since all we're talking about today is faith and faith in the work of the cross, kind of bringing all those pieces together. Once you to identify one of these words at which you need to grow in or you need some help in. This is a simple application. Remember, uh, no, 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 Tisha, knowledge. 
Maybe you're, maybe you're here today and you're new to Christianity. You actually don't know the, the content of the gospel. You don't, you don't know what it's about. You're just, you're just checking this Jesus thing out. Some friend invited you. Maybe you've been a Christian a long time, but you just don't get sermons because sermons are a medium that some people just have a difficult time connecting with. And so you, you need to sit down and talk with someone. If that's you and you want to know more about what is the actual message of Christianity in the gospel, find me, find a pastor, find someone you trust here. Fill out a, a connect card and put it at the connect table. Just say, I'd like someone to talk to me about the gospel. And trust me, we're not going to come to your door and be like, you know, are you ready to get saved? We'll just explain to you the, the details. We want you to count, count the cost first. So if that's you, that, that's your step for today. Second, a census. Some of you uh, have a hard time affirming the truth of the gospel, especially if you're by nature a skeptical person. Um, I, I'm generally a skeptical person. Um, I, I kind of like distrust everything. Uh, all you have to do is tell me a conspiracy theory and I believe it for like 10 minutes because I have so much distrust of like uh, government and institutions. It's, it's like, oh, so maybe there are lizard people. Um, <laughs> when t today, um, you might just need to ask God, Lord, I have faith, but help my unbelief. That's a direct quote from a Bible. There, there's there's a, a person in the Bible who's asking Jesus for, for something great. And, and Jesus' response is, he answers him, well, do you, have, you know, do you have faith? What's this faith thing about? And he's like, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. If that's you here today as we transition into worship. Say, God, I, I do believe, but my faith is small. Help my unbelief. The good news for you today, for those of you who are like that, the Bible says you just have to have the faith of a mustard seed. You don't need certainty. Faith is not certainty. Fiducia, maybe some of you, you, um, you know the gospel and you believe it, but you're not, uh, you're not trusting in it. You're just not trusting in it. You need to work through. Sometimes that's because of disobedience. Sometimes it's because of insecurities. The gospel says you're loved and you don't trust it. You kind of intellectually affirm it, but deep down in the core of your being, you, you don't let that penetrate your heart and soul. So my encouragement to you is to talk to somebody about that in your small group. If you're not in a small group, join one and say, I was listening to the message and I know the gospel and I believe it, but I don't feel things. Can I just talk out loud for a bit? You gotta be brave. You gotta, gotta work on these things. If you don't wanna do that, again, you can find somebody here, fill out one of those cards. We'll talk to you about these things. I know so many people in here know the gospel and affirm it, but they, they haven't had it transform their inner life. And lastly, if, if you're like me, what's most convicting for you is, I believe it, I know it, I feel it, I'm just disobedient. You need to re-up your pledge of allegiance to King Jesus. You might just need to repent today. Say, God, I know all this stuff, I know it all. I even knew these dumb Latin words that are on the screen, I know it all. But at the end of the day, I'm disobedient. And so I, I, I need to repent. I need you to, to change my heart. I need, I need to get back on the right track. Help me, Lord. So I'm going to close in prayer. The worship team's going to come up. And as, as we do that, pick one of these things out and uh, commit, commit, commit it to God. Father God, uh, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the offensive message of the cross that saves sinners like us. Help us to work through all these complicated issues. And we love you. We give you this day. And we commit this time in worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.